Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello, and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Michael Fink. He's the co-CEO of Treasure Hunter. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. Uh, You and I chat a little bit online occasionally, and I watch what you're building and what you've built already. So this is going to be both educational and fun for me to have this conversation with you. So thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Ron, for having me. And obviously, I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I've tuned in a lot of shows recently with Blake from Flipper.com or Roland Frazier. I mean, the man's a beast, right? So I had to rewind like, I don't know, for 10 times to really get all his information because he's really able to condense information in such a short way. And yeah, so being in line with all these guests, I'm super honored. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I love the accent. You're from Germany, right? Yes, absolutely. My accent probably gave me away. I'm from Munich, Munich. South Germany. You guys probably know the Oktoberfest. Yes, that's Munich. I'm currently living in a small city in Munich. It's called Bukhausen. And did you know that Bukhausen has the longest castle in the whole world? It's 1,000 meters along. One of the big highlights here. See where we're like... One minute in your show can already check off the fun fact. <laughs> They're the longest castle in the world, and I live near some of the biggest trees in the world. So I live underneath the sequoia and redwood trees in the California redwood forests. There's a yeah, few of them here. I live in one of the many. So let's start off with the origin story. What got you into buying, growing, and owning media assets or websites, blogs, that type of stuff? Yeah, sure. let's kick it off with a walk down the memory lane. So more than 10 years ago, I co-founded Evergrowing. So not Treasure Hunt, Evergrowing. Together with my back then girlfriend, now wife and mother of our three kids, of our three boys. Yeah, we co-founded Evergrowing. We chipped them both a thousand euros back then. And we started out uh, publishing all these product review sites. Funny enough, I think at 2011, it was the time when the wire cutter started out as well. But unless the wire cutter, we were heavily focused on the German speaking markets like Germany, Austria, Switzerland. So we published a lot of product reviews, in depth product guides, and so on. We gained fast traction and we grew and became one of the leading product review websites in Germany. So I think of us as a European version of bestreviews.com of the New York Times is the wire cutter. And then back in 2019, we saw the rise or we saw various publishers and these uh, big media companies entering the space. I mean, 
you guys probably experienced the same in the States with CNN entering the space with CNN underscore the business inside, inside of pics. So we thought, okay, well, now with our product review website, we're not competing against uh, best vacuum cleaner2018.com, but with these big renowned authority media publishers. So we decided not to fight them, but to team up with them and enter into partnerships. So very similar actually, as the wire cutter is actually running in some kind of subfolder at the New York times. So we started out these partnerships at first in Germany, then we expanded on over Europe. So now we have partnerships in Germany, France, Italy, Spain, the States with VentureBeat or with MSN.com, for example, but also in Brussels, we acquired a stake in Revue a pub tech company that's running very same partnerships in the Latin American market. So we had basically our journey here over at Evergreens. We went literally from nothing, founded the company, literally out of my student housing living room. We never took on any investors, or business angels. We don't have any debt in the balance sheets and we grew ever growing into now more than 30 websites, including 20 partnerships with these renowned publishers now all around the globe, except the Asian part. And in total, we are consulting or we're informing and advising more than 30 million people per year. And our partners, these media companies have a total of more than 1.2 billion monthly users. So these are really some heavy hitters in the space. So that's the history of ever-growing and we're still running the ever-growing assets. So we're really deeply rooted in this content space and in the content websites. And then back in 2021, we saw all the Amazon FBA aggregators emerging, like Praise mm -hmm. Your Heyday, Racer, Group, Purge, you name it. And we were like, wow, it's amazing what these guys are pulling off. I mean, they've raised like, I think a $15 billion in VC. Uh, equity and debt funding combined uh, in just a couple of years. And then we're totally disrupting the space and are heavily aggregating. And we were like, wow, the business model, the underlying business model is amazing. You acquire these assets that are valued at a very reasonable, at a very fair price point, let's say 2x or 3x. You aggregate them, you build out some kind of synergetic portfolio. And you leverage all these synergies between your assets, between Amazon FBA companies and build out this portfolio company that's obviously trading at a way higher multiple. So we are driving on the one hand of the organic traffic and organic growth of these assets. And on the other hand, this is multiplied by the valuation of a trash. And we were like, okay, come on, let's not start the like, I don't know, 100 and 35th Amazon FBA aggregator, but the youth and apply the very same model to a space where we really have deep knowledge, where we have a custom advertiser base and where we have international teams in place, where we have all these media partnerships built up over the last couple of years. And yeah, that was the reason why we started and how we started Treasure Hunter back in 2021. I co-founded it together with Benjamin as running Evergrown as CEO since 2019. And Olaf Schmitz is also one of the founders. So he's a super smart guy, founded his first company at 17. And then he has been running the whole European Amazon affiliates for more than five years. 
He's owning the largest barbecue and grilling content and network throughout Germany. He sits in a lot of boards, even the open source startup valued at $3 billion. Yeah, he's on the board of a couple of uni brands. One of the Amazon FBA aggregators, I think they've raised like $300 million in their last round. And our fourth co-founder, Daniel, he's from the e-com world. We co-founded Treasure Hunter Chipton, a couple of 100K from our own personal funds. I've used these to acquire our first site, Rise of 40 translates into something like a happy traveling, so a German travel blog. And we basically professionalized this uh, travel blog by, by using better SEO tactics, better content strategy, removing all the technical issues, adapting the sales processes. In the end, we more than doubled the revenue and the EBIT within a couple of months and even surpassed our own expectations. And yeah, this brought us to our next funding round last year in August, closed it, we raised a couple of million. And since then we're on a shopping tour and we've acquired and now more than 10 additional content websites in various spaces. So a treasure hunt is ever growing is all wire cutter like a product reviews, whereas treasure hunter were really doubling down on these communities and on these really passion related verticals. Like imagine anything you'd like to spend your leisure time on, be it like travel, outdoor, nature, sports, food, and so on. And yeah, same strategy here, similar to Evergrowing, we're acquiring a couple of websites and then we use all the synergies between them. So really in a nutshell, that's the history of the beginning from Evergrowing to Thresh End. Awesome. I like that you guys focus on like passion, what I call it, passion niches, right? There are things that people, there's just huge followings for. I was looking at your website right beforehand. I'm a big guy, like, so I love to go fishing. You have a fishing blog out there. And if you know anything about, especially here in the United States, if you're passionate about fishing, it might be deep sea fishing, or you might be salmon fishing, or you might be fly fishing, or you might be bass fishing. If somebody comes out and says, this new lure catches bass faster than anybody else's, I don't care what it costs or how much your budget was for the month on that. Chances are you're buying the new, coolest, latest thing out. So passionate markets are really cool in the fact that their passion often overrides their logic. They're into something really in it. So here in the U.S., it's like fishing, golf, health. There's a bunch of different passion topics. Does that help with the traffic and stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially it helps with the diversification of the traffic. See, compared to our product review sites, if you look at the customer channel, they're really at the still end of the funnel. So right before you probably head over to some kind of site and then you close the transaction in some kind of e-com shop at amazon.com. But these passion verticals and passion websites, they're like one step ahead in the value chain. So these are the communities where the ideas are sparkling. And think about, let's say you're some kind of foodie and think about what you do next. And then you head over to your favorite food blog and you see, oh, wow, so we cooking is the new thing. And uh, you check it out and you let inspire you and these ideas are sparkling. and that's all what these passion related blogs are about it. You're here in the M and A and small business space. And that's basically some kind of passion vertical as well. If you take a look at the Red Ventures portfolio, I mean, these guys are doing, I think now 2 billion in revenue per year, but they've doubled down on the financial niche and they're very strong in this finance vertical. So basically every big 
finance asset like points guys and so on you're visiting its own ventures we're following basically the same business model but unlike Garrett ventures we're not doing some kind of multi-million or billion dollar deals not yet but we're really focusing on content sites that have like 100k in net profit up to a million so that's really our sweet spot but yeah completely agree and the huge advantage of these passion related sites is they are not only dependent from the Google SEO traffic, because in these, within these assets, you see a lot of social media traffic, you see newsletter traffic, you see all of these media areas that are attached. And I think that there's a huge opportunity to just diversify your traffic streams as well as your revenue streams. I get it. One of the things I learned that in this B2B mergers and acquisitions of small business space is it's a lot smaller than I thought it was. We own two newsletters in it. We have this podcast. We have some other interests we're looking at, but we were trying to figure out why we can't grow them faster. They're slow to grow. So we started looking around and the biggest guys in here that you mentioned, Roland Frazier and like, and some of these other guys that have been doing this and teaching this and they've got content going out daily. Even those guys have the tens of thousands of followers instead of like low tens, instead of the hundreds of thousands of followers, some of these other influencers have in other niches. And even myself, if you look across all my platforms, I'm close to about 140, 150,000 followers across all of them put together. And that's an accumulation of, you know, 14 years on Twitter <laughs> and all these other platforms. So we were looking this morning because we were thinking about taking our newsletter, one of our newsletters and making a subset of it on LinkedIn. And the number one podcast in this space is M&A Science. He's got a newsletter. He's put out 221 or something issues or episodes, or we even call it his newsletter. And he's got less than 6,000 subscribers on it. And I'm thinking it's just such a tight, small space. So as I look to acquire and build other website and newsletters and content stuff, I'm looking for things that are more in that B2B, but broader than just buying and selling small to medium businesses. I like your content, your review sites. I would love to, like, I was looking at one that reviewed um, business brokerages of all things, which is still really tied into this niche. Software review sites, I think would be interesting for me. Um, and then I'm actually looking for what other things outside of this that expand my horizons <laughs> a little bit. What else is out there that I would be interested in that has a much broader audience? Yeah, but I think the M&A space, if we take a look at uh, GPT and how it might disrupt the future space, so I think especially the digital media space, we'll see a lot of disruptions by the AI, be it on the content side, but as well uh, as on the IT and software side. So basically, the, this kind of generic how-to, how I change my x or y these kind of a generic fact-based content parts will become a commodity and the same goes for any generic tech or programming and with that said there might be a lot of disruption throughout the industry but always when there's some kind of disruption there are always a lot of opportunities evolving and i think it, it might be fair to say that, that we see a lot of content creators, solopreneurs and small startups raising up a team started today run with, let's say, 100 FTEs might be possible in the near future with, let's say, 
three to five FTEs and an army of AI marketers, coders, newsletter experts, and so on that are powered by some AI tech. And in the end, we might see way more uh, small and medium startups on the horizon. And all of these kinds might eventually look for an exit or will think about how can I optimize my business for an exit or how can I acquire a competitor. So I think the M&A space will really be one of the big winners in this scenario. Whereas I personally think that uh, the VC space uh, will get a heavy hit because in the future, um, powered by AI, might not be in need of this VC money that comes with all these uh, strings attached uh, anymore, or at least to the extent we're seeing it today. Yeah, I mean, the whole ChatGPT and all these different AIs that are already out there, they're really impacting, like even to today, when it first came out, I was like, that sounds kind of cool. And then I went down the rabbit hole a little bit and took a look at it. Now I'm prior tech. If you kind of look deep into my background, I'm prior tech. I was tech when I was I was technically inclined when I was in the military. When I got out of the military, I worked for government agencies and co contracting companies to design computer systems for it. So my background is that I thought I was burned out in it. But when I went down this AI rabbit hole, the next thing I know, I'm pulled back into technology because this is really intriguing. I left tech because it was boring to me. I always joke around and said, if there's something wrong with the computer, it's either the idiot that programmed it or the idiot behind the keyboard. It's rarely the computer. And then human beings are so fascinated. If you look at a human being, give them a step-by-step -step procedure on how to do something, they'll do it their own way, whether you know how many steps you put in front of them. So humans intrigued me. Computers bored me at the time. Now I'm back into this stage where, oh my goodness, look at this thing that they've created. It's very intriguing. I upset somebody yesterday on a call. I told them, if you're not slightly scared by AI, you're probably an idiot. And the guy was like, I'm a computer science guy. I'm not offended. I'm not scared of this thing. It's nothing more than autocorrect. And he's so far from the truth. But if AI is both exciting where it's heading with all this, with the ability for us to create content faster. And it should be a little scary because the faster speed at which it's growing and the amount of stuff that it can control has the potential to disrupt everything we're doing. So the other thing that concerns me in this, and tell, I want your opinion on this, is at some point in the human experience, if we switch our desire to have that connection with another human being, the guy that was actually physically there on the beach telling me his experience, we watch so many news and YouTube and Netflix and stuff like that. We love this fake case studies, movies and drama and stuff. If AI gets so good at telling stories, at some point, will we care that it was a real story and a real human being and a real experience? Or is it okay for it just to be something made up that was just really entertaining to read? I think both aspects are true. I don't know if you're aware of these uh, synthetic avatars and these uh, synthetic uh, influencers. And I've recently uh, come across a study that I'll shoot you over the link uh, later. And I think the engagement rates of these uh, synthetic influencers or from real users uh, with these influencers were like three times as high compared to human influencers. And I had to reread it a couple of times because this was like super weird at first. But yeah, it would totally prove your point that at least to an extent, a couple of people are thinking, okay, wow, it's completely fine. Uh, to hear some stories and see some involvement of some kind of AI or virtual avatar 
uh, that I'm following and that's uh, evolving. But I think both sides might want to hold true. So I think these are personal relationships and these are real time events and uh, going out, meeting some people. I think they might stick around for a long time. But yeah, AI might really influence way more sectors and areas that might envision today thinking of like lawyers, architects, indoor designers, bookkeeping, and so on. There are like thousands of areas, and especially not the blue color jobs, but really the highly trained, the super skilled, know how based ones. There might be, it's a super exciting time to live. Let me put it that way. So I'm not ready to announce what it looks like yet, but one of the little projects I'm working on the side is something like that. It's just to see, just because I know AI is coming, it's going to do this. It's going to do what it's doing. I'm trying to figure out how do I participate in it? How do I make it work for what we're doing? But we're working on on something in that space where I've already done one, if you dug through my episodes, but there's an, actually an episode out there where I'm interviewing a guy I refer to as Ollie Pinman. And Ollie means artificial language intelligence. That's all Ollie stands for. And Pinman stands for pen name, as in mm. a ghostwriter, like a pen name. So anytime you see Ollie Pinman on any of my articles or Ollie Pinman being interviewed, it means we're interviewing AI. And there's a disclosure on the website that says it. I interviewed AI on the concept of what does it look like to buy a small to medium-sized business through ChatGPT, one of the early versions of it. And the response was so good i actually deep faked my voice deep faked a voice for the ai and turned it into a podcast so the podcast isn't even me asking the questions the interview is an ai tool deep faking my voice my part i trained it on my voice i actually recorded a bunch of sounds and gave it to it so it spoke as me and as a matter of fact if you listen to it i sound more robotic than the ai voice we assigned to the guest but none of it's real it's all deep fake from start to finish it turned out really good because at that point, I'd already interviewed 100 people, so I knew the right questions to ask. Yeah. This whole prompt engineering is the key right now. I don't think AI, and it may be six months from now, we may have a whole different story. I think you have to know the right questions to ask at this point. You have to, what they call prompt engineering. And as a writer and a content creator for you and me, we get really good at prompt creating. We can use it to augment. I haven't had writer's block in weeks. Yeah. I write some of this own stuff. If I get stuck, I have an idea. I probably should write about this, but I don't even know where to start. I just plug it into the tool and say, tell me about this. And I'll read it. And a lot of times I won't use what it created, but I'll turn around and I'll start writing myself. But it spurred. It got me past that thing. And you got to fact check the snot out of it too, especially in a technical space, in a B2B space, when you're talking about step-by-step -step procedures or you're doing something like that. I say this in almost every show now. So there's a phrase I like to use. It's called competent incompetence or competent ignorance. AI at this point is still what I refer to as a confident ignorance, meaning it's absolutely competent. It's right, but it doesn't know what it doesn't know. So it's like asking an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old a question if it doesn't know and he gets a reward if he gets the answer right. He's going to tell you an answer like he thinks it's right. And at the end of it, you have to go, well, you have to have your own BS meter. So let's talk about what does the future look like for you? How do you look at where Treasure Hunter is going, where your other company is going? What's the the path that you see? And AI aside, maybe integrate some AI into your thoughts. Where do you see yourself going with this? Yeah, so Treasure Hunter, we're still acquiring assets. And yeah, especially we'll double down on these communities and we're working heavily on basically redirecting all this pre-existing SEO traffic into 
some kind of owned media or owned audience channels like a newsletter or any membership areas or some kind of dedicated groups. So to really transfer and get the bridge from the organic traffic that's inflowing and then coming to really some kind of recurring or direct traffic. I think that this building this bridge is imperative and in the current environment. And yeah, we've been building out our portfolio and we'll continue to do so. As of now at Treasure Hunter, we're in three verticals with a couple of assets. We have new assets already in the pipelines and a couple of LOIs, and we're looking to acquire the next assets in the next couple of weeks. The acquisition tour is still ongoing and might be ongoing for the next couple of years because it's really all about building up these portfolios. When we're acquiring these assets, we're really acquiring assets mostly without any management and without a dedicated team, often without some kind of proprietary tech. And by really integrating all of these assets into our treasure hunters system and putting it under our treasure hunt umbrella into the holding company, we're really leveraging synergies. Think about when you, for example, run and operate one travel block compared to, let's say five travel blocks, or you have these high synergies in the content side and the SEO side regarding advertisers, regarding your tech stack and so on. That's how we're thinking about these content verticals. And I mean, one big learning from Evergrown is that in some cases, size really does matter. And that's exactly one because at the Evergrowing one, fun fact, it was, I think back in 2014, 2015, we had a lot of traction throughout Germany and I reached out to Apple and asked them if I get some kind of iPhone as a product to review. And uh, did you know what they answered? Yeah, me neither, because I never heard back from them. And later on, when, now when we have all these media publishers and these big corporations behind us and partnered up with them, like billion dollar companies are approaching us saying, Hey, can you put our products as some kind of ads into your content and so on. That's one huge learning we had uh, over the ever growing when you have a decent size and a decent market share within your vertical, it's way easier to get any direct advertising deals or any partnership, any corporations or team up with any colleagues through some kind of cooperation or partnership. The, the second part that, that goes hand in hand with this is we're really looking at this as some kind of micro private equity play, right? We're building, we're aggregating all of these assets and we're building them and transforming them into a company, meaning we have a management team in place. We have various departments for like SEO, IT, social media, sales, and so on. We have an M&A department. It's really all about finding these deals on market as well as off market. Then closing the deal, we have an onboarding department where, where they just making sure that the transition from the previous owner into treasure hunter is going super smoothly, they're doing some kind of light HR process to really weed out editorial freelancers and so on. Then obviously we have the operations team where we're really uh, running and operating the businesses and where product owners, we call them kind of mini CEOs, are managing the day-to-day -day business of these assets. And in, in the end, if, if you look at it from some kind of words, I view these are not 
any isolated assets anymore. That's a holistic portfolio within various verticals with huge synergies in place. And we have a management team and so on. If you ever take to, let's say, private equity, we've talked to a couple of these guys. And first thing that they're asking is, are you selling an asset or really a company? Because it's like the worst nightmare to acquire an asset without management. These are financial guys. It's absolutely not their play at to, to venture into some kind of asset-based company. They're really looking for an existing management team in place for the track record for history. And this kind of buy and build M&A strategy, yeah, it's basically some kind of M&A home tour. You want to keep that in mind when you aggregate these kind of assets, especially uh, given the fact that when you really build out and transform them into a company, there's this valuation arbitrage in play. I know if you know the study from Bain, they did some kind of case study and analyzed what's really driving at the total growth, what are the value drivers in private equity. At first, everyone would assume it's operations, right? Because private equity, I mean, these are the companies with billions in assets under management. They have like top-notch connections. And so they have really a smart team in place and they have these top-notch industry connections and so on. That's not true. According to Bain, more than 50% of the value was created by multiple arbitrage and not by operation. So let that sink in. So these big private equity companies with top-notch CEOs and super paid stuff are really not on average and on a longer time frame, were not able to drive the growth by the organic business but instead by putting together various small companies, merging them together into this bigger one and selling the bigger one and really a thrive of the multiple arbitrage. And if you do the math, it becomes quite clear because let's say you acquire a business that let's say brings in a million net profit. You acquire it for three X so three million and you grow it. Let's say you, you double the EBIT, you, you're some super fancy operator and super smart. And now you're at 2 million and would sell it at the same multiple for 6 million. But if you bundle it together in some kind of portfolio, and if you not get to 2 million, but like 3, 4, or 5 million in eBay, and you have a synergetic portfolio and you have a management team in place and all, then you're bigger. And then it's super easy to sell the company for 10x plus all these Amazon F aggregators like Thrasio are using the battle-proven case that all of the private equity guys are using and we're just applying it to the content space and these community-based instances. In the end, our business model is super boring. I mean, it's what private equity is doing like for, it feels like centuries when you talk to the guys, it's actually like, I don't know, 20 years. But the super interesting part about Treasure Hunter is really the assets and businesses that we're working with because these are really this kind of Indie publishers and super small companies, often very, very artisan-like, so that they don't, often they don't really feel like this kind of managers or CEOs. They just love to put out great content, adding stuff and reviewing some products. And that's their word. For me personally, it's super interesting to use this and really level it up and bring it to the next level and reach the bigger audience with their content. Because ultimately I think the customer will really focus and go down to the content uh, 
space and the content quality. I think this kind of content is often way superior compared to the big media outlets and big publishers that are really producing content on us. That's where we come in at Treasure Hunt and we use the assets and their content and we help growing them to the next level. That's one of the main reasons actually why they are selling to us because at some level, they're hitting a wall, they're hitting the ceiling. I'm a content creator by heart and I want to stay with this content creation focus. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges we're facing. We call it a DNA conservation to really preserve this spirit and this the kind of content quality. And I think that's only possible because we're acquiring really assets that have grown a lot and that are really at hundred K net pro per year, because at this stage. You don't produce your whole content yourself. You often have some kind of editorial teams or some freelancers in place. And so we're able to onboard them and thereby transfer the DNA and their style and their writing. Because I think that's really the heart and the core of their assets. Yeah, I was going to ask if you, how do you handle, like when you acquire a media asset, a blog or a newsletter or something, it's been written in a style of the original team or individual that was creating it for the existence of it. That's what I was going to ask you. When you buy these, do you keep the content creator in play or do you try to, if they want to exit, does that kill the deal for you? Because now you got to figure out how to write in their language or can you, I know with AI, it's kind of cool. I did this with one to test. I was looking at one. I took his top three performing blog posts. Mm. I wrote a blog post and then said, told the AI to rewrite it in the style of, and I fed it those, I think it was about four or five articles from him. And I said, rewrite it in this style. And it did a really good job. It changed my phrases and nuances to his. It made it look like it. And I sent it to him and said, hey, did you write this? And he's like, no, I didn't write that. It looks like something I would write. And I told him what I'd done. And this was during the evaluation of his site. And I was like, because he wants to leave. He's just done. He's wanting to retire out. I still haven't move very far on that one. It's a very small site. But I'm concerned if you take over something somebody's been writing on for three years, can you continue to create content that appeals to their audience because there is a connection there? Yes, super, super important question there. So if you really take over a site in this price range, if you look at these 100K net profit per year site, so often it's structured in a way that the asset owner is producing like, I don't know, 10 to 20% of the whole content. And the remaining part is already produced by some kind of freelance editorial team. And there, obviously, we, we look to take over the majority of the staff of the team to really conserve the style of the writing and the editors and the, the whole, let, let me call it, spirit of the asset. On the other hand, we've done a lot of full exits, meaning the asset owner completely exited the asset, but we had his editorial team still in place. But We've done actually one deal of the food blog where we did some kind of 50-50 partnership and where the current asset owner is still in place, is still like producing the content, but we are helping them and we've lifted off all these kind of orga stuff and yeah, this kind of management stuff from its shoulders, meaning all the SEO structuring, keyword researching, part of the internalization strategy, the outreach, the sales team, and so on. So that the asset owner could really refocus on what it can do best, namely creating this really 
great content, figuring out uh, new recipes. I was really able to refocus and super happy with the setting and we're super happy and the blog is growing. And I think that this is like the, the perfect win-win scenario. I like that. So that makes sense. I do want to cover one thing. I know we got to be careful how we get into this subject. I know that you mentioned earlier on this show that you raise money uh, to acquire it, you take equity in. I don't want to go into any of that because I know the SEC rules. We can't. But what I want to talk about is if I buy something with my own money or private lenders, people that are working with me, we can pay them off in a loan structure. We can give them a piece of the action over time. But when you raise funds, typically they're expecting an exit or a liquidity event at some point. Does that cause you not to be a long-term holding company? Are you guys buying these, growing them and selling them like a private equity? That's what it sounds like. Or do you have some that you're like, we want to hold these and milk them because they're great. They're a great source of income. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Actually, every time, basically, when you take on investors, almost in every case, I know they're looking for an exit anywhere down the road. So yes, Treasure Hunter, we're looking to exit the company probably in five to eight years where we don't have some kind of a fixed horizon. Lucky for us, we don't have any VCs on the board that are really pressing or any private equity that has this kind of clear version saying, okay, our fund has to exit in five to seven years. Now we have a lot of flexibility on this and, but yes, we might sell the whole company down the road, either to some kind of strategic buyer, like any media company, Red Ventures like, or some of the e-commerce companies that are looking to expand their value chain, or what would also be an obvious choice to private equity as this kind of bandwidth strategy is the home turf. But yeah, let's circle back to the funding structure. We did like various funding structures in the last couple of years. So we had this 100% cash payout. We had 100% center side financing at 0% interest rate. So meaning we've acquired a side and I think it was a 300 something thousand dollars. And we've been paying the seller on a quarterly basis. And over the next three years, and we've acquired the asset at a three X multiple, meaning basically when the site is flatlining, the site will pay itself. But I really have to emphasize that's really the absolute exception to the rule. This kind of hundred percent of financing had already, or it only happened because the seller had some kind of very specific tax reasons and their personal circumstances made this possible, but in general, getting someone to really exit the company with a hundred percent seller side financing might be like super challenging and might really be more kind of a search fund like a theme where you really look for like the one out of a thousand companies really the needle in the haystack we did anything in between so we did some kind of 60 percent down into remaining part seller side financing we did 70% down and the remaining part based on future performance. So some kind of burnout structure. When it comes to racing and let's say you're an acquisition entrepreneur and you're looking to raise some funds, acquire a media asset, first way will probably any, any investors that you have at hand, that you have a personal relationship with or any family and friend rounds, and you could structure it easy in a way that you say, okay, let's do like. 30% equity at the remaining part in debt paid over five years. 
or some kind of a revenue-based financing where you say, okay, 30% equity and the remaining part as some kind of revenue-based financing where you pay accordingly to the revenue of the assets, meaning when the assets produce more revenue and more net profit, you pay back more. If it's doing less, you pay back less. So I think there are very, I think a lot of uh, flexible options on the table. Maybe I'll share one insight on this. I think that there are a couple of approaches here, how you deal with potential uh, sellers. So we're really not in the game of pushing the seller to exit or that we've already talked to sellers. They had the experience of some uh, M&A brokers that kind of tried to harass them into a deal. We're working on the very opposite angle. So Tim has this mantra of always being the favorite buyer, meaning he really takes the time and listens and tunes in. So what's the personal situation of the seller? What are his needs? Does he really need the money right now? Or would he be able to do some kind of seller financing or any performance-based structure where he can even profit from the future gains of the asset? Then he's super smart and super creative in the combination of basically that there are always two parts of a deal, price and terms, right? And that's where we have all the flexibility to move the parts around and structure it in a way to really become the favorite buyer. That's our approach here at Treasure Hunter. And that might be the difference to, let's say, private equity. And we had, for example, we had a private equity term sheet on the table and they were like, yeah, okay, we're super flexible on the deals and on the structure. And we were like, yeah, that's great guys. Okay. So let's switch A to B and they were like, Nah, sorry, can't do that. And okay, let's move the other part around and talk about the earnings structure. Yeah, sorry, that's standard for us. And we saw exactly what we don't want to be. So we want to really be flexible and super focused on this. It's brilliant in the fact that I've interviewed at this stage, probably 125, 130 advisors, brokers, uh, lawyers, private equity companies, people, players in this space, people like you been doing it for a while. And the one thing I learned, one of the things I learned that I wouldn't have suspected at the beginning, it's logical now, but at the beginning, if you'd have told me this, I probably would have pushed back a little bit, is most of these businesses that sell don't sell to the highest offer, right? Most of these businesses sell to their favorite offer, meaning that a lot of times they'll take somebody that they really liked and a slightly lower offer than they will the highest and best offer. One of the guys we had on the show, he said, it happened to him. He's a broker. He's been a broker for 30 years. He said, the guy come back and said, why would you know, the, the highest offer was all cash and significantly higher than the second highest offer. And the guy took the second highest offer. And when the broker asked him why, he says, well, the, the highest offer, even though it's all cash, the guy's a jerk. This was a veterinarian service. He goes, these are my people. These are my customers. These are my the employees are my friends. There's no way I would stick them with that jerk. Right. Like the highest offer wasn't the best offer for him. The best offer is who's a safe pair of hands for his business. And I think you guys are playing that right. You're becoming a safe pair of hands. Somebody these content creators can trust, they believe in, they felt acknowledged, they know that you're listening and that you have the future of the site at heart. You're not just a, a numbers cruncher looking to make an extra dollar. It goes a long ways. I really think it does. On day one, two and a half, three years ago, when I started to get in this space, if you'd have told me that a lot of businesses sell to the second or third down offer because they just like the person more. I had a laugh and said, probably not. Like, I don't think that's true, but it is absolutely hundred percent true. Yeah. I can't agree more on that. 
And we've talked to like so many asset owners and they're really hesitant to sell the asset to like anyone because it was, it took so much time to build it to the level where they are right now. And so that they're really hesitant to hand over the baby to any random guy that's probably only financially interested in this asset, a really valid point. And actually we've learned this kind of the hard way because see in Europe, all our partnerships and the fact that the affiliate market in Europe is super narrow. I mean, there are a couple of major players. Everyone knows everyone. We have this huge industry reputation that's preceding us. At Treasure Hunter, when we were entering the US market, we were thrilled and then we were like super excited. And then we had the first calls with the asset owners and they were like, yeah, okay. Who are you guys ever growing? Yeah. Never heard of you. And we were like, yeah, okay, well, but we've run these partnerships with Le Parisien, Longadia, and they were like, Longadia, never heard of them. We were like, ouch. Okay. So this was this huge learning because we had no, or, or almost no assets in the U S we had no huge U S footprint. And so we really had to learn that these, the M and A outreach that went like too bath smooth throughout Germany and throughout the European Union was really hard at first in the States because it, it's not just about the money that you can say, Hey, look guys, we will raise this amount, these millions. No, it's all about trust and your reputation. And we did a couple of deals and we bought a couple of assets. See, these asset owners are super closely connected with any others within the vertical, but also any other kind of bloggers, let's say the food blogger, some kind of outdoor blogger and so on, because they, on a regular basis, they meet on virtual events, they're in some uh, kind of similar Slack channels, they're looking at following the same influences and so on. And when we've done a couple of years, we started getting the first inbound leads and the first asset owners responded, oh yeah, wow, I've already heard of you guys. The other one, you, you acquired the asset, right? And yeah, he did talk to me how great the experience was and yeah. And that was where really that the tides were shifting and we really got the momentum, but it was a huge learning and exposed. I really have to say we did it really the hard way, not the smart way. So the smart way would have been to really enter the space enter the industry and talk to a couple asset owners, build up some trust and talk to all the experts in the industry and first build out really your profile before you start entering these M and A talks. But we really were on a timeline and we had to move fast as we kind of just hustled our way through it. Uh, but yeah, if I had to do it again, I would definitely switch to another approach because it's not only about having the cash in the bank account, just we're being able to really close the transaction. It's not only about having the cash in the bank account, it's really about the trust of the seller so that you're really a decent person and that you really have this industry standing. And yeah, that was one of our biggest learning when we entered the U.S. market. Awesome. We're getting close to the top of the hour. Let's make sure everybody is like, what are you looking to buy now? So if somebody actually listening there and they're thinking about selling their website and you're looking, you said a hundred thousand dollars in revenue upwards to a million. Are there any particular niches that you guys like? I know you you talk about barbecue and food and fishing, but are there any, like, Hey, if you've got something in this type of passion, can you give us your 
target acquisition profile? So when we're looking for any content sites with a history of more than three years and more than a hundred K and net profit up to a million and preferably in verticals like food, sports, outdoor travel is the ones that we really have a huge footprint established right now, a solid history, obviously no shady 301 redirects, no PBNs in place and no AI content as well as we're still figuring this out from a risk reward perspective and it could be really community focused. So we're really not looking about this back then you called it a made for ads and sites, these sites were just plug in a couple of generic content so that it's monetized and it brings in a couple of bucks and then you resell it. No, we're really in for the verticals that, that I really have a lot of passionate content, really unique insights, personal stories, and a community of following that's really excited about this brand and about this topic. It's interesting is that's how I entered in this space many years ago. I'm not going to date myself back before Flippa and back before all these cool places to go find them. We hung out on forums. I think one of them was like warrior forum or something like that. And we would buy and sell uh, websites and I would find those AdSense sites. Like you're talking about generic content websites, they are AdSense or whatever. And what we would do with them is if they got really good traffic, just using that model, we would go in and say a site had 30 good articles. It got decent traffic. They're making hundred, two hundred, $500 a month on AdSense. We would turn around and add really good articles in there and mix it in. So now you got really good articles mixed in with the other stuff and we grow them and then we turn around and sell them later. Unfortunately, back then it was really easy to spoof all your stuff, these private blog networks and all this other stuff. And I got burned pretty hard on one of them. So I pulled out of it, went back to doing something else. And now I found myself full circle looking at content sites again, years later. I'm not going to date myself, but more than 10 years later, put it that way. But I do appreciate having you on the show today. We made it through most of the show without some technical difficulties. I think we did really good today. Before we leave, if somebody can remember three things from the show today, what would you want them to remember of, of what you talked about? Tough question. First of all, stay curious, stay positive. Yes, the AI is on the horizon and might disrupt a lot of industries, but disruption always means opportunities. And I think there are a lot of acquisition entrepreneurs still waiting on the sidelines and I think the next couple of months or even years, a lot of opportunities will open up and this might be the perfect time for you to really enter the game. And yeah, keep acquiring. As of now, we were a hundred percent in a buyer's market and there, there are a lot of opportunities on market as well as off market. Just hold on to them, enter the market, take the risk, but always be smart about it. Diversify in terms of your traffic streams in terms of your revenue streams and just look a little bit ahead just think about what gpt or any ai setup might be in the future in the next three six months or one year from now and just try to stay on the conservative side never enter a space where you really go all in and know crypto like hoping for the moonshot that's not how you should uh, perceive investing. Really stay on the conservative side and don't invest more than you really have. No problem at all to lose. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me here on the show. I really appreciate it. My last question for you, how can I help you in well, any way or 
I'm always looking, I'm playing in the realm slightly smaller than yours. If you get somebody out there that has a, and you're looking for passion niches, I'm kind of looking in that B2B space. So if somebody brings you a site and goes, hey, would you be interested in this? And it's B2B related, um, entrepreneurial making money, doesn't have to be mergers and acquisitions. I'd like to look at it if it's smaller than something you guys would look at. And I'll do the same thing. If somebody brings something to me, they'll think, man, this is probably a treasure hunter property, not me. I'll circle back around and say, hey, somebody presented me something that's not in my wheelhouse. Are you interested in it? We can just, we can trade leads that way and help each other grow. That would be beautiful. Sounds like a solid plan. Yeah. Would love that. Okay. How would people reach out to you? If somebody's got something you want them to use LinkedIn or you got a better way for them to contact you, what's the best way for somebody to, to reach out to you? Yeah, so the first way, obviously, is our website, treasurehunter.media. And the second one, I'm available on LinkedIn as well. So just reach out to me or to TM Yafari, our CSIO, who's running the MLA and deal flow. And yeah, we're always happy to have a chat and or look at an asset. We've been getting a lot of inquiries about or from potential sellers that are saying, okay, as of now, I'm not at this point, but let's talk about the future and how I might set up my company to be a possible target for you in the next one or two years. Yeah, it'd be a beautiful conversation to have. Somebody says, hey, I've got a travel blog. We're doing five figures. We're almost at six figure mark. Don't want to sell it now, but maybe next year I will be ready to. What do I need to do to make this uh, an appealing product for you, appealing business for you? That would be a good conversation because then people can grow into something you would acquire. I enjoy when people have that conversation with me. It's like, look, I'm building X, Y, and Z. I'm not ready to sell it yet. But if I were, what would you be asking me? So then they know. I do the same thing. I appreciate it. We'll call that a show. Thank you for being here and hang out for just a second. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. Uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now